From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On this week's episode of End of Day Drinks, we're chatting with Garrett Oliver of Brooklyn Brewery Fame. Garrett is a man who wears many fancy hats, but the past year has seen him stuck inside just like the rest of us. This, he explains, led to the launch of the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Oliver tells us how 2020 events sparked a realization that being black and seen isn't as good as actively bringing others into the fold. He sees formal education as the key to long-term careers for BIPOC in beer and spirits. Let's hear what he has to say. Hello, and welcome to Vine Pair's End of Day Drinks podcast, aka EOD Drinks. I am Kat Wolinski, Vine Pair's senior editor, and I'm joined today by Vine Pair's editorial team, including Joanna Sherino, Katie Brown, Emma Cranston, Elgin Nelson, and Keith Beavers on the line producing off mic. And our guest today is Garrett Oliver, who many of us know as the brewmaster of the Brooklyn Brewery. He's also the author of The Brewmaster's Table, editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer, a James Beard Award winner, and lots of other things. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, calling in today. I know it's not as fun as having you in the office uh, over some beers or some cocktails, which I think you also tend to enjoy. Well, hopefully um, pretty, pretty soon. I'm, I'm, I'm fully juiced up. Yes. Moderna juice. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to hear that. To actually see people again uh, really soon. I am very excited for everybody who's getting their shots. So congratulations. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of things that we would like to hear from you about today, from the Michael J. Jackson Foundation, the Museum of Food and Drink exhibition, and the Brooklyn Brewery, of course, the new beers, the continuing growth abroad, um, including in Chile. But what I'd really like to start with is, what does a day in the life of Garrett Oliver look like? How has your role as a brewmaster, of, as the brewmaster of Brooklyn Brewery changed over the course of the last year through the pandemic? Well, I would say that my, my life has been, you know, outside of, thankfully, uh, you know, I have not been ill at all. I haven't even had a common cold. Uh, you know, outside of that, my life has been more radically changed, I would say, than most people because uh, my my normal year would have included visiting about 10 countries and meeting thousands and thousands of people. Um, right. And so, you know, it's, it's certainly bizarre to go from that to being basically stuck inside your own house. And I was actually traveling so much that even though I didn't really complain about it, uh, I actually wanted to spend more time at home. So, <laughs> you know, watch out for what you wish for, because I, I, I got a lot more of it than I was uh, bargaining for. Um, oh, my gosh. But, you know, I've tried to, like everyone has, I've tried to make the, uh, the best of it, but it's been a bizarre year. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't imagine how a globe-trotting, dinner party hosting man of mystery like yourself has been operating in these circumstances. Um, but I know one of the big things that you were able to accomplish this year was launching the Michael J. Jackson Foundation, and that you recently announced the first five award recipients. So I would love to hear more about the foundation, how you created it, and how 
these scholarships uh, will honor the legacy of your good friend. Oh, well, thanks for that. You know, it's, uh, I did not, uh, you know, I, I didn't lose 10 pounds and I didn't learn French or read the great books. If I ever had the time, um, you know, but mm-hmm. in the wake of the social movement that we saw last summer, these are plans that I already have, but with the globe trotting part, you know, came, uh, uh, you know, a, a difficulty in focusing on a task really this large. And so it's a strange thing. It, it gave me, uh, I'll, I'll use the word opportunity, um, to actually focus on, uh, on the founding of the foundation and what the Michael James Jackson foundation for brewing and distilling does is actually pretty simple. Uh, we provide funding, we award technical, uh, uh, let me go back. I will say we award scholarship awards, uh, for technical education in brewing and distilling. Um, and you know, it is, a uh, an odd thing. I was just being interviewed about this today, uh, by some folks from Brazil and they were asking about, you know, what does the American brewing industry look like? And even though uh, various uh, uh, various uh, uh, racial groups uh, that are not of European extraction are nearly half the country, uh, they make up only a couple of percent altogether of people working in brew houses and distilling houses. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of historical reasons for this. People tend to think that this is because, oh, um, you know, African-Americans and Latinos and Asians and indigenous people are not really into craft beer, which is not true. <laughs> this is yep. something that people made up. Uh, like, not true at all, number one. Um, and number two, there are a number of reasons why this has happened. And many of us in the industry have actually participated, you know, in the perpetuation of this situation, even without intending to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, what we're doing with the foundation is just simply moving one toggle, which is one of the barriers, which is that you need you need to either have experience or you need to get an education, uh, a technical education, if you really want to work, you know, uh, and have a future in brewing and or distilling. And the education is very expensive. Um, it is worthwhile, but very expensive. Uh, African-Americans, for example, have 10% of the family assets of European-Americans in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I want to repeat that, 10%. People find that difficult to believe, yeah. but it's true. I'm not talking about income. I'm talking about money that you might put your hands on to pay for something, 10%. So when you have a uh, a course that costs ten thousand dollars, sixteen thousand dollars, this becomes a nearly insurmountable barrier to the vast majority, you know, of people of color in the United States. Or you say we want somebody with two or three years of experience. Well, where are you going to get those? <laughs> you know, yep. you have a ticket problem. You know, if 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 there's nobody there, then nobody can have two to three years of experience, and if you can't afford the education, you can't get there. Right. Which means that you end up perpetuating the situation essentially forever. 
So we're looking to break that cycle. Yes. And you've picked some really awarded some really interesting and inspiring individuals um, who you can talk about more if you they're, like. They're, they're, they're inspiring and amazing, you know, people. And uh, I'm hopeful, well, we are expectant, I will say, that uh, in future years we'll get to a point where we are going to be able to take people who don't even have a foot in the door of the brewing industry or the distilling industry and bring them in. At this early stage, we're starting with people who have a foot in the door. Maybe they're even kind of doing well, but they don't actually have a technical background that will give them a career. Right. And coming so from your like, from the like perspective working, of, oh, go ahead. No, I said just like working in a, you know, in a, in a kitchen, you can become a good cook in a kitchen being taught stuff by the chef, by rote. But if nobody ever took you through all the backgrounds of things and how to make socks and all the foundational sauces and whatever else, it's going to be hard for you to advance and become, you know, a great all-round chef. Um, it's possible to be a great cook without, you know, actually having the training to be a great chef. Now, it's not the only way that you can become a great chef, uh, uh, professional training, but it is one path. And so it is the professional training path that we are uh, facilitating for people. Hi, Gary. This is Joanna. I was wondering what the process was like in finding um, these recipients. Well, first we, uh, we put out, and we did it entirely over social media. Um, you know, we put out basically uh, a call for applicants. Um, they went out in two rounds. So when people got in touch with us, they then were sort of let through a gate to a place where they could upload all sorts of stuff. And we tried to lower the barriers uh, to that so that it wasn't a complicated thing to do. Uh, people could, they could upload videos. They could upload, you know, all sorts of stuff that would then go, you know, into a file for us. We have nine board members. We actually spend hours and hours and hours reviewing uh, every one of a hundred or so applicants that came in. Um, these came down to about 14 finalists, and we interviewed all of them. Um, and then there were just many, many hours of, you know, of discussion uh, before we arrived, you know, at, at, uh, at these five individuals. But it's also important, I think, uh, to note, and I hope that I'm going to be able to live up to and that we will be able to live up to this as an ambition. Um, if people did not get this particular scholarship at this time, we don't view that as the end of the process of trying to work with them. As I was saying, there are many paths. There are other scholarships. There are people we know who are offering internships. There are mm -hmm. all sorts of things that are going on. And what we're looking to do is to use the access that we have and the connections that we have to help out anybody who comes in front of us and is serious. So even if someone did not win this scholarship, that does not mean they won't hear from me next week with three other opportunities that are not directly through the MJF. But I kind of regard uh, the work that's visible 
as being like the 20% of the iceberg above the water, you know, in the cliche, <laughs> and the 80% is below the water, and the 80% is actually the bulk of the work, which is not the part that people are donating money for, which is paying for technical education, but it's at least as important. I mean, we have already, well before this, gotten people jobs where they have been offered equity as brewers, you know, in, in new breweries. Um, and so that is at least as important as what we're visibly doing. Right. Yeah. I see that there are just so many, you know, maybe it's a handful, but it seems like more and more of these internship opportunities are, are coming up. We have beer culture working with several organizations. We had Tisha Cook actually and the Bronx Brewery on the show recently um, with, with these much more technically focused um, training opportunities, which, you know, it's, it's certainly a barrier and it makes sense to me too, coming from um, the Brooklyn Brewery as well as a much larger organization and one that is, you know, more, more focused in future thinking in terms of quality control and um, learning those kinds of those basics that, you know, the rules that you can't break and then the ones that you can in order to become successful in these fields. Yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of people who uh, came up as I did, you know, the old fashioned way you kind of start here. Some people might start as a dishwasher or they are behind the bar or, and you know, they get an opportunity to work in the brew house. They show some aptitude and work their way up. But possibly when the time comes and someone says, okay, uh, I would like you to change the recipe so that, you know, it's this much more bitter and the color goes this way and it's slightly less sweet. That person may or may not know what to do because they've been taught how to brew, sure, but they haven't been taught the underlying science. Right. Um, and, you know, and one way or another, you need to fill all that in if you're actually going to have a career rather than a job. Jobs right. are great, but hoping to help people build careers and the people uh, to whom we've given uh, these uh, scholarship awards, we expect to see them in uh, positions of influence where they are going to be able to hire other people. And then eventually, I hope, is we will see tasting rooms and tap rooms and such that actually look like America. <laughs> because right now, we all know that they don't. Yes. And, you know, as I've said to many people, it's like, okay, imagine this. If you are, you know, a person of European extraction, suppose you love natural wine, like you're really into it, um, or you love cocktails, or you love craft beer. But every time you wanted to have these things in a public setting, when we could go into public setting, in a bar or a restaurant, every time you went in there, everybody in there was black. Mm -hmm. You were the only white person in the whole place every time. Like, how would that be for you? <laughs> you know, Imagine and, that. And if the an yeah. And if the answer to that is, oh, that would be fine. One, you're probably lying. And two, it's, you're a bizarre person. That is not, <laughs> that is, no, that's not, it's not normal. It doesn't look normal. It doesn't feel normal. Right. And that's the world that, like, you know, people of color live in, you know, in this country and in this business. 
when we walk in, we are often the only one in the room. And mm -hmm. it's bizarre. <laughs> I am heavily so, nodding my head, but you can't see me. <laughs> like, yes, that does no, sound no, super I, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, when you reverse it, people say, oh. <laughs> you know? Right. And you're then like, you feel yeah. it. Then you notice, right? Then you notice. And it's like, um, because... You know, if you're white, you never noticed that there were only there was only one black person in the room. You're there with your friends. You're doing what you're doing. Why would you notice that? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it is the truth of what goes on, especially at the higher end of of food and drink and whatever else in the United States. And it's not that people aren't interested. It's not that they don't have the money in many cases to at least afford a beer uh, in these places. Uh, it's partially that there is this vibe being given off that, like, you're not welcome in here. And part right. of that vibe is not actually hiring anybody or having people in the business who might bring their friends and relatives to your business and spread the love of what's supposed to be going on in the world of drinks. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And it's something I found really interesting with some of the biggest leaders around racial equity and equality in beer over the last year. Um, we heard this with Marcus Baskerville from Weathered Souls around the Black, Black is Beautiful campaign. Like you didn't know you'd end up an activist. <laughs> it's like you start looking into your own experience and then realizing, uh, you know, it's maybe you have this, this role or this job and you didn't really face that much adversity personally but then you realize this is like such a broader uh you know there's there's so many reasons behind you being the only one there in that room um is it accurate to say that you had a similar feeling around the time you launched the michael j jackson foundation absolutely you know and i and i have to say that you know to a certain extent when people would talk about intersectionality i didn't really i understood what it meant when i read the words but I didn't really understand uh, uh, a lot of parts of what it truly meant in real life. And uh, look, I grew up, you know, there were times when I was poor, like they came and turned the lights and the gas off. I mean, poor, poor. <laughs> but uh, by and large, for most of my life, I grew up fairly middle class. Yes, I had teachers say and do racist things to me, whatever else, but we... You know, I grew up in the 60s. We powered our way through a lot of situations. Wow. Um, and you grew up in New York? So I grew up in New York. Yeah. Uh, wow. In Queens. But mm -hmm. I went to Stuyvesant High School, you know, not because I was brilliant, but because I had parents who really drove home the importance of education. Mm -hmm. And I saw many, many people who were every bit as smart, if not smarter than me, and who had wonderful families and whatever else get shoved to the wayside by the tremendous drag forces of this society trying to, you know, to put you down. And so just because I managed to claw my way here um, is not in some way indicative. You know, it's like people pointing to, and I'm not putting myself in these shoes, but people say, oh, well, things have changed. Obama has been president for mm -hmm. eight years. Like, well, like, look around. Like, that has not done anything <sighs> for the average person uh, walking up and down the street. I mean, it's awesome, but it hasn't fundamentally changed people's lives. And, you know, I kind of came to realize that representation 
was not simply being there and being visible. It's great to be visible, but that mm-hmm. does not mean that you've done anything for anybody. Right. Uh, you can still so, be doing very much <laughs> and inspiring people. And I mean, you've obviously accomplished many things in your 27 or so years with Brooklyn Brewery. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also looking at how can I bring more people in? Yeah. I mean, and you get to a point where you have kind of, uh, you know, political and social capital of some sort. Uh, and I, I watched, you know, um, over the past year or so, you know, people who have a voice out there, like Tom Colicchio, uh, who I've known for 25 years, probably, um, really kind of speaking out there on social issues and saying to myself, well, if I have a platform, if people are going to listen, um, then what are you going to do with it beyond being able to get yourself in a reservations in places that are tough to get into? the fact fact that chef will take your phone call you know is awesome but are you actually using that all only for yourself or are you going to do something for somebody um and so you know it became important to me over this last year you know that uh, uh that whatever position i might have achieved becomes meaningful you know beyond me um, and Michael uh, Jackson, you know, who we're talking about, and obviously your listeners will know that we are not talking about the pop star. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't really realize at this point, you know, uh, years on uh, from his prime, um, just what a massive figure he was in food and drink in the 20th century. I mean, craft beer as we know it worldwide almost certainly would not exist without his writings. He sold about 15 million books in 20 languages. <laughs> you know, nobody came anywhere close to, you know, to him. Right. Um, I don't know whether the old wine writers of the day, like Hugh Johnson, ever sold that many books. Um, but I doubt that they were that influential, though they were big names, you know, in their day. Um and Michael was very distinctly and noticeably anti-racist, and he did things about it. <laughs> hmm. And sometimes they shocked people, uh, including, you know, in 1991 or 92, when he, you know, almost single-handedly put me on a panel, you know, of six people to choose champion beer of Britain. And, you know, you had a bunch of people sitting there in that room in London, a room, you know, where no black people had ever been. And you had a young black guy from Queens. And it's like, well, why, who is this guy? And why should he be here to choose champion bear Britain? But at the time, Michael was basically a deity. And he <laughs> could say, say, well, you know, like, you know, you know like Garrett, Garrett's the guy. Um, and it was things like that, that kind of wind uh, uh, in my sails it helped me get to where I am now. Um, and, you know, I think that the idea, the American idea of the self-made man is a truly corrosive and ugly thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it is not, it is not true. It's a lie. It's always a lie. Um, and I think that, you know, we should be relying on one another and we have to. So, Garrett, this is Katie. Um, 
I have a question that relates to this. I was just wondering what you think that breweries and beer drinkers can kind of do to follow in those footsteps and be anti-racist. Because this past year, you know, there's been a lot of beer collaborations and there's been ways to donate. And so I'm wondering, like, what you think are the most helpful ways that and the best ways that people are doing it. Well, you know, I heard, I don't know who it was that said it, somebody a lot smarter than me. Um, but, you know, and they were talking in this case about black people, but you can apply it to whatever group, you know, uh, you want to, you know, try to bring some benefits to. And what they said is, okay, whatever it is that you're doing, you feel like you're doing, um, if black people can't uh, use it to get a job, uh, eat it, drink it, spend it, uh, live in it, then the person for whom you are doing this work is you. Hmm. <laughs> right. And, and, and when, you, when, you, when you think about that, you're kind of like, mm. oh, oh, like, yeah, things that are not tangible, like, oh, I became president, I did this, I did that. And yes, you know, I went to a couple of marches too, and I'm not saying people shouldn't go to marches, but don't fool yourself that that is actually direct action. If nobody can do anything with it, then you are not bringing the benefits that you thought you were. And so when I went to approach this, you know, I said, what would be actually effective? What would actually change somebody's life? What would actually put them in a position of power within this industry where they could affect change. And so the, the, you know, the MJF has turned out to be very streamlined in its focus. And we are not at all saying that this is the only path. There are 20 different paths. We're just choosing one because to say, oh, we're going to do everything is one, a function of ego, because you're not going to save the world. <laughs> you're not going to do everything for everybody. Why don't you just try to do one thing as well as you can? And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to mostly do this one thing as well as we can. And we think that it will make some difference. And then you'll have 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 other organizations who will make some difference. And together, we'll all get something done. That's right. good advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Garrett, this is Elgin, um, and I wanted this is a perfect segue to what I wanted to touch on. Um, and this is about the Museum of Food and Drink. And you know, for our listeners that are unfamiliar, you know, the museum uses exhibits, you know, to change the way people think about food and drink. And I know they have exhibits that highlight African Americans in culinary brewing and distilling. And you know, much to that effect of you know the National Museum of African American History and Culture, you know, that serves the same way with the Museum of Food and Drink. And I wanted to touch base with you and speak, have you speak on your experience and your role with that. Well, you know, it, it's certainly been exciting preparing for that exhibit, which is called African American uh, Setting the Nation's Table. And we were just about to open <laughs> that exhibit uh, at the top of uh, Central Park on Fifth Avenue. Um, when the pandemic struck. So we had actually finished, you know, just about finished the exhibit. 
when the pandemic prevented us from having our opening gala, and then, of course, from opening the exhibition at all. But what the exhibition is about is the largely untold history of African-Americans and American food, because people tend to think that, okay, the uh, African-American contribution to the American food world is in soul food and barbecue, which is absolutely true. What people don't know is that even haute cuisine was brought into the United States, practiced, taught, promulgated, and developed entirely by black people. You know, people have this idea. It's like, oh, some dude must have come over from France in 1790 and started to... No. No, there was no French dude. <laughs> <laughs> right. There was no French dude. It was, oh. you know, it, it, it was James Hemming, you know, who, when he arrived back, uh, still enslaved to uh, Thomas Jefferson after Thomas Jefferson's stint uh, in Paris, uh, you know, as our ambassador... He had been through, had been put through all the major kitchens of Paris and came back as by far the most accomplished chef in the United States. And then he started to pass that down. And then it moved up through the hotel systems, which is where haute cuisine comes from in the United States. It's the, you know, the grand hotels who had basically all black staff. So, yeah. uh, right. you know, input, uh, is something that came to us entirely through African-Americans, and we have been cut out of the story that we actually told. And the same is true in brewing, uh, where you know African-Americans did almost all the brewing in the United States up through the Civil War. Like, who do you think was actually brewing the beer? Every single right, African right. society in the South, East to West, traditionally is centered around brewing. Brewing is central to all African societies. Uh, and yet beer is seen as European. And so, you know, we have a partial history told in so many things. And so uh, this is actually uh, not only an inspirational but fascinating history because people have been told that they were not part of and their families were not part of something that they were, in fact, integral to. Right, but right. that, you know, that's the story of America. Um, and just as the Museum of Food and Drink did a great job telling the story of Chinese food in America, which is totally fascinating, and tied up also in racism, politics, etc., a lot of people had never heard, you know, of the Chinese Exclusion Act until they came to a exhibit that was ostensibly about Chinese food in America. But then they were reading about you know, how did we end up having Chinese food as sort of a major American, you know, uh, uh, you know, food to the extent that it is the most popular type of restaurant in the United States? Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and people, people like look up, they say, well, like, well, wait a minute. That's interesting. How yeah. did that happen? You're like, yeah, how did that happen? Right. Uh, but but somehow Asians are like disappeared personally, you know, from you know from this scene. So you go back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s when you can start to hear about great chefs, and you don't know any Chinese people, right? Like 
almost nobody does. You know, they, they became like the top, the top promulgators of a type of restaurant in the United States, and nobody ever heard of them. But that's what America does. You know, it, uh, it, it kind of wipes out, you know, a lot of people's histories. And part of one of the many, many things the Museum of Food and Drink is doing is, you know, telling people the truth, which is often fun, often interesting, sometimes disturbing, uh, but always enlightening about their food. Hey, Garrett, this is Emma. Um, I just want to circle way back really quick and ask one last question for the listeners at home. Um, and for those looking to learn about beer and brewing, um, especially through the internships or programs you've discussed, um, I'm curious about how they can study up at home or like outside of a brewery. And I read that you're the editor-in-chief to the Oxford Companion to Beer. So I'm curious how people um, can harness that text, whether they're beginners or pros at home and just uh, what role the text plays for both of those who are like essentially self-taught as well as those maybe training to be Cicerones or advanced Cicerones um, and just how you feel that um, text influences the larger beer world. Well, thanks for the question. I'm certainly uh, gratified that uh, my first book, The, the Brewmaster's Table, which came out in 2003, um, that that book is still in print and that it actually sells more than it did 10 years ago. And I think that that speaks to, you know, the development of craft beer in the United States and, and people's interest in it. And the fact that what we used to call the gas station beer list, where, you know, they just had a few of the major brands, which you would see in top restaurants, is no longer the beer list you're going to see. It may not be as developed as it should be, but you're going to see some good stuff on almost every restaurant list, which, you know, you didn't used to see. Um, and so both of those books, uh, Brewmaster's Table uh, uh, and The Oxford Companion to Beer, are widely used, which is great. There are, you know, a number of other great books uh, uh, that are out there and, uh, and, worth, and worth reading, Randy Mosher's Tasting Beer, um, any number of other ones. And Cicerone is doing a great job you know, of basic education all the way to advanced education, you know, for people, especially who are going to be on the, uh, on the serving side uh, of the equation of beer, which is frankly where the rubber meets the road, is having, you know, people in the restaurants and sommeliers as well, uh, you know, understanding the world of beer. Because I think these days, people tend to think that a sommelier is a wine waiter. That's not a sommelier. <laughs> An actual sommelier is not a wine waiter. A sommelier is somebody who's supposed to curate your experience of drinks, which includes beer, wine, cocktails. Real sommeliers like Roger Degarn, you know, who was at Chanterelle, you know, in those major years. I, Eric Asimov and I went there once about 15, 20 years ago, and Roger took us through the most amazing tasting of sake. And I, at the time, I didn't really know anything about sake. I drank sake, but he was taking us through sweet sakes and dark sakes and aged sakes and knew all about these and could talk his way around beer and knew his way around cocktails. That's a sommelier. <laughs> um, and you don't see those you know, as much as you used to. Juliet Pope was another one when she was at Gramercy Tavern, you know, a real sommelier. And so 
you know, where I think that these books are helpful, you know, when it comes to building that culture back into, you know, the drinks culture. And then uh, there are so many online resources as well for just learning the basics at home. But the great thing about, about beer is that, frankly, your, um, your entry level is about as easy as it possibly could be. You know, you can have a good article and go to Whole Foods and spend like $20 and get yourself a good beginning education, you know, in four or five or six, you know, different beers and understanding style. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great thing about that is that if you understand a little bit about beer and what it tastes like and what the various types are, and then how you might want to do stuff with them with food, your life will become slightly better every day for the rest of your life. Ah, that's so true. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, and we, really, isn't that like the best you can possibly do? Like, yes. There aren't many things in your life that, that are going to make things a little bit better every day. You know, <laughs> you, discovered, you, you discovered jazz. Mm-hmm. Your life will be a little bit better every day for the rest of your life because now you discover jazz. Whereas maybe a few weeks ago, you'd never really listened to jazz. <laughs> things are better. That, that is that's kind of like a, that critical thing that we're able to do. Something brand new to like. I mean, what, what an amazing, when I discovered fish sauce, like fermented fish sauce, when I really discovered <laughs> like how to use it at home and cooking, it changed my life. <laughs> it is such a game changer. I agree with that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, all very true words. Beer is a secret sauce, it turns out. Beer is a secret sauce to all things. <laughs> um, that's a really great way to end our conversation, I think. So thank you, Garrett, so much for sharing these many pearls of wisdom. And I hope, and I know that the rest of the team hopes that we can share a beer with you sometime in person soon. Absolutely. And, you know, thanks for all the great work you guys are doing at Vine Beer. I'm reading your articles and stuff online all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's great to see people out there, you know, doing the work because Lord knows we need it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Bears headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Bear Stations Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Bear's co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg. Vine Pair's art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.